Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we are in Mark 14 today. If you got your Bibles handy, we like to read Bibles. So we're going to dig in. Uh, the context for Mark 13, Jesus has entered as a triumphant king in chapter 11. Chapter 11 and 12, he comes into the temple, takes over as the high priest, um, setting things in order and taking authority over the teaching. And then in chapter 13 last week, we got an entire chapter of prophetic words about what was to come. So king, priest, prophet, laid out, same as Mark. He does all of these things because he is all of these things. And then we get to Mark chapter 14. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So the timing here is Passover. That's the important part of those first few verses. It sets the context. I think it's important as we do Passover that we note that it was a holiday of remembering things. And they were supposed to remember what happened back in Exodus 13.3. They were instructed by God to hold a feast called Passover, seven-day feast. And at the end of that week of getting all the leaven out of your house, cleaning the sin out of your life, they would feast before the Lord with pure hearts. As a nation, as a family, they were supposed to do this. So Exodus 13.3, and Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out from this place, there shall be no leavened bread be eaten. And then seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. And it shall be when your, thy son asks you the time to come, when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, what is this? Like, because that's what sons say. What is this? What do we do this for? You shall say to him, by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out from Egypt and from the house of bondage. That was the covenant with Moses and with Israel. The covenant that Jesus is about to make in chapter 14 is the same covenant with a new set of arrangements. But the Lord is going to bring us out of our sin and he's going to give us a season where we can be free from the bondage of sin. And so you look at how Jesus is setting up this chapter and what's going on with the Passover, um, and especially with Peter's preaching. Like, the Gentile listeners wouldn't know what Passover was or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they don't need to know all of the Jewish history. All they need to know is this is when the Jews came out of Egypt, and they're freed from that bondage that they had in Egypt. And the timing here is that there's rumors of Messiah all over the place around Jerusalem. So as Jesus is teaching his disciples, everybody's talking about Messiah because Daniel predicted Messiah would show up at this Passover. So they're looking for it. Candidate number one is this guy named Jesus walking around healing people for three years, claiming and, and accepting the worship of people as he came into town. Every tomb in town has been painted white. 
And the reason for the painting of the white tombs or the whitewashing of the tombs is because as Jews would come up into Jerusalem for Passover, if they accidentally got bumped and touched a tomb, they didn't technically touch it because it was painted, right? So they put a layer of white over these tombs, a covering over death itself. And so this tradition of the Jewish people that God frees them from sin, but God also covers the cursed dead things so that they can be pure before God is the entire image of Passover. The Pharisees want to take him by trickery. Actually, the chief priests and the scribes want to take him by trickery. They don't find any fault in him over the last couple chapters. All four Gospels show that they couldn't find fault in this guy when they questioned and queried him. The smartest people in the world were able to go to Jesus and try to trick him or catch him up on something where they could get him. And I... I all it takes is one clever journalist for me to get tripped up on my words. Like, it's not hard to do. When smart people are trying to go after and get people to say the wrong thing, and Jesus navigates it all, I think, miraculously, supernaturally. They have no regard here for God's law because they are trying to, by trickery, take an innocent man and do him harm. And by every Jewish law there is, and by every Roman law there is, you don't kill someone or put someone in prison if they haven't committed a crime. Frankly, that's pretty true of most laws, unless you're under Napoleon or something. Like, that's true of, like, most civic law. So they try to put him to death. That's not an appropriate punishment for somebody you don't like. Um, Mark has shown, though, throughout the book of Mark, we've seen a, a progressive disregarding of their importance and their authority. They are puffed-up people that Jesus doesn't recognize as authorities. So the real problem we have here is they think they should be recognized as the, the spiritual authorities, and Jesus doesn't do that. He simply doesn't give them their due. So their willingness to murder is even a greater condemnation and a reason to disregard them as leaders because they're putting themselves over the law. They're not good leaders. And it says not during the feast. Why not? Why couldn't they do this during the feast? The problem is the people have seen Jesus do this in the courtyard. They saw him being in a triumphant entry. They've watched him miraculously heal people and save people. And even spiritual people have just been released from this obligation and burden that the world wants to put on them. And so they're worried about the people because the people have accepted Jesus as king and as high priest. And they're recognizing his authority. So when evil can't operate out in the open, it starts getting sneaky. It turns to stealth and subterfuge. And this is how evil operates. If it doesn't think it has controlling position, it acts deviously. And when they do think they have controlling position, they act murderously. So instead of anointing their king as Messiah, king, priests, and prophet, they seek to kill their Messiah. Like, wouldn't it have been cool if the scribes and the Pharisees just said, yeah, we can find no fault in this guy, and with God's, you know, him doing miracles, we accept that he's our Messiah. Wouldn't have that been awesome? And the Jewish people right now are having a giant celebration of Passover where God has redeemed them from their burden, bondage to sin, and Jesus sets up this new covenant with the Jewish people. Like, that would have been a pretty huge head start on Christianity if a million people accepted it on day one. But he has 12, and most of them abandon him at the time of his death. And, I, you know, and, and of course, I'm not going to second-guess God's plan here. That adds even more validity to the power of God that he didn't need a million people to start a new covenant. He needed these small group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots 
this mishmash group of people. That's all God needs to do anything. Devoted, heartfelt devotion of people. He's anointed in the next scene, um, but the anointing isn't one in the temple courtyard with the high priest doing the anointing. The anointing is very, is so much more humble. But don't miss what Mark or Peter is preaching right now. Here's this guy who should have been king. It's Passover. They want to try to take him by uproar. They're not going to do the anointing at the temple of this guy. But then the anointing is still going to happen because that's how God works. And he does it so beautifully. And I think this is better than a big celebration in the courtyard. Listen to this. And, and, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table. A woman came having an alabaster flask of costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves, saying, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Let her alone. Why do you, why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. So this anointing happens anyways. And it's not the high priest. It's some woman. In Mark, we don't get the name of the woman. In the other Gospels, we do. And I think that's the point for Mark. It doesn't matter who she is. It matters that this nameless person, this woman, chose to anoint the king because she saw that he was the king. And she is anointing him for burial, right? So she's, this is what you do when you honor someone. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's about a 30-minute walk if you want to hike it. It's over the Mount of Olives. It's on the other side of that. A woman in John 12, we know that it's Mary, the Mary of Mary and Martha, the sister of Lazarus. She, she loves him. She adores him. We know that from other stories. Um, and she loves that Lazarus has been raised from the dead by this guy. She knows the power of resurrection. She doesn't doubt the fact that when he says, I'm going to die and be raised, she's giving him a pre preparation for burial because that's what you do with a king. And Peter leaves all of this out because the focus is on Jesus for Peter. She doesn't talk about it. She just does it. She doesn't ask Peter permission to do what God's calling her to do. I think we should note that because a lot of people like it's one thing when you're trying to coordinate with a big group of people that you go and talk to your your rabbi, your pastor. It's another thing when God's called you to do something, you just do it and you don't need permission. You need to when, when we say, you know, how'd your week go? You just tell us about it. Here's what happened. Um, the alabaster flask. Uh, alabaster is a, uh, it was first mined in Egypt, but at this period in time, it's likely mined in either northern Italy or actually in the United Kingdom. So the trade networks have grown. Uh, it implies, if it's an alabaster, it implies that it's a family treasure or an heirloom. It's something that mothers would pass down to their daughters when they got married. So it was something that you would anoint uh, and you would do that with. The alabaster was sealed. They didn't have a cork lid on it. They actually sealed it in the alabaster. So the, even the putting the oil in there was very hard to do. So that's why it says that she broke the flask is because when you decided to use the oil, you had to break open that flask and then use it. Oil is spikenard. Spikenard is another word for a honeysuckle plant. But here's the thing. At this period in time, it was likely a honeysuckle plant that grew in the Himalayas. So if you think about this, you've got stone from Africa with an oil from Asia being used in the Middle East and probably shipped through Roman ports in Europe. So it's kind of a cool image of what she's doing here. It was used as a perfume, a wine, a medicine in its raw form. It, had a, it has an odor to it. 
It's not a flowery odor, and we have some spikenard upstairs if you want to smell it afterwards. Um, it's an odor, um, but it would definitely, uh, if you're going to bury a body, it smells better than a dead body. And it's a strong enough flavor to cover that odor because what they would do is go in and tend to the body. They would lay it in, in state, kind of, in an open tomb, and that you would go in and care for that body so that you'd wash it and keep it clean. And you would lay it in, the, in that in that state for some time. This is why the women were at Jesus's tomb three days later. They were going in to wash the body. So when they go into the tomb, they don't want it to smell like dead flesh. They'd rather smell the spikenard. So that's what you're doing. So her faith that he's going to die today is a big part of her breaking that flask today. You don't do this a week before. If you know they're going to die and you're trusting Jesus at his word, she's trusting that it's going to happen right now. The other reason spikenard gets used, I think this is beautiful. Um, in the Song of Solomon, there's a mention of spikenard. Um, there's a Shulamite in the Song of Solomon. She's talking to her beloved. The Shulamite says, while the king is at his table, just this respect for her husband. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragments. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. There's this adoration that comes with spikenard when we see it in the Old Testament. There's a love for our bride, our groom, our spike, the, the, the marriage partner that's going to be there. And, you know, you see this image of, of this unknown woman, Mary, using spikenard on Jesus. There is an image of she, she loves her king. And the way Song of Solomon is worded, it, it actually uses the word king, where it's an image when you read Song of Solomon for the writer. Here it's actually applicable. It's being used on a king who is adored. Kings generally aren't adored, they're feared. But for this particular king, there's a deep love and appreciation. And then she pours it on his head, which is what you do with oil when you're anointing somebody, not when you're burying them. So she puts it on his head. She treats Jesus as her king, not as her boyfriend, as her king, as her beloved. There's an intimate, beautiful, loving, honoring sentiment that's going on here. The tradition of putting a drop of oil on a visiting guest would have been a history that's part of this story, but the visiting household that he's in is the household of Simon the leper. Don't miss that. This is happening in the humblest of homes, a home that elders and scribes wouldn't even walk into. That's where this is happening because God doesn't need a fancy building to do the work of God and the holiness of the Spirit. It's not about the things of this world. Lowly situation, lowly anointing. It says here that some, I just want to point out some, there's a number of people in the room that saw this. And it doesn't say only Mary. It just, it does say some of them were there. Some were indignant. That means there were also some that understood what Mary was doing in the room. Peter gracefully leaves names out of this because he's not trying to point fingers at who was indignant and who understood what was happening. There was a mix of them. But we know then with Mary in the room and the 12 disciples, we've probably got a larger group of followers that are here for this event, witnessing this event and seeing it. Some who were indignant thought it was being wasted. The word wasted there is apalia. It's where we get the word apollyon, the destroyer. You've destroyed this thing. John 17 uses the word perdition, which is the same word he uses when he talks about Judas. 
it's also pointed out in other gospels that Judas kind of led the charge on this indignancy, right? So he's the one that's kind of upset. But in, in when we read it in Mark, I think Peter's trying to point out it wasn't just Judas. There were other people that were like, what are you doing wasting that? Some didn't understand that there was nothing else in this world that that oil was meant for or worthy of. In fact, there's nothing in this world that's worthy of Jesus. So to question why are you wasting that on Jesus is, I think, something we all struggle with. Both oil and lives are wasted if they're not given to the king. Yet we as humans are like, well, I don't know if I want to give that to the king or not. I don't know if I want to give that part of my life up to Jesus quite yet. I'm going to hold on to that thing. And Mary's just not like that. It's all for God. It's all for his honor, his glory. Everything and her best goes out to Jesus. This would have been an heirloom Mary likely got from her mother, and it was likely carried for generations. Some of these alabaster flasks, the Jews would claim, went all the way back to being taken out of Egypt. And at the Passover feast, that would be very appropriate. It's, you know, they put a price tag on this, 300 denarii. Clearly, it was an heirloom. It was a priceless heirloom when they put that kind of number on it. That's about a year's wages. So they're saying, you know, average income today is about 50000 a year. They're saying that is about a $50,000 glass of oil, and you just destroyed it. Why? So likely this oil was coming all the way down or had a, had a good claim to becoming some of the things they took out of Egypt when they left Egypt. There's a record of them taking silver, jewelry, and, and things like this would have been part of that. So they, they criticized her sharply. That implies a kind of anger. They're actually mad at her. You ever heard somebody criticize like that? What are you doing? Why would you do that? Like there's a, a critique that's to her person, not just to the wasted stuff. They criticized her sharply. Um, and it says they criticized her sharply. Again, it's not just Judas here. There are disciples going, what are you doing? So, eek. You know, maybe they should be considering one another in order to stir up love and good works. Jesus calls this a good work. She's done a good work for me. And instead of stirring her up to do good works, Hebrews 10.24, they're actually discouraging her from doing good works. They still have lessons to learn. And as Jesus comes on the night of his, you know, crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, he's still teaching these disciples. Verse 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. The nature of our faith is that it's personal. We all seek and talk to God. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to figure out as Christians. All of us are trying to work out our life towards Jesus Christ. And when we learn to hear from the Spirit of God, we simply try to do what God's telling us to do. And God's hitting every one of us at different places. And they're criticizing her for where she's at. And Jesus' advice is just leave her alone. She's doing what God's called her to do. And I actually think supernaturally God told her to do this because he wanted it in the scriptures. And so why is it in the nature of Christians to trouble themselves about the actions of others? Why do we do that? And, I, and I, this is kind of the first part of this chapter. And we're not going to do the whole chapter. I, I hope you notice there's 70 verses. We're going to try to do due diligence on like half of them. How many total verses are in this chapter? 72. 72. Yeah, we're not going to get to 72. So if you're worried, man, he's going slow. He's going to go three hours today. I'll, I'll try to keep it around an hour. Um, but I, there's this idea that we trouble ourselves. We look at people less fervent than we are, and we think they're slackers in the faith. Maybe they're not even believers, because they're clearly not all in. 
Yeah, we don't give those people credit that they're doing what God's calling them to do right now as they go through their journey. And on the other side, we look at people more fervent than us, and we call them fanatics. And we do this to ourselves in the church. We trouble ourselves about people that are behind us or in front of us. In fact, we even conceive of behind and in front. I'm using that language, and I don't want to. We're all doing what God tells us to do every day. Leave us alone. Let us seek out our faith. That's part of the freedom of Christianity. If somebody tells me they're seeking Jesus with their whole heart, mind, and soul, I have to take them at their word. If I see actions to the contrary, we might have a conversation. But if they're saying, I'm doing my darndest, even in the backsliding moments, our voice should be of an encouragement voice, and it should be to encourage that person to deal with the things that they need to deal with, wherever they're at. A good work. Why do we assume that the work of God is somebody else's job? <laughs> right? She's doing a good work. She's doing what God's told her to do. So if God defines things called good works, this is Jesus talking, and he says there's such a thing as a good work. And if that's the case, and God's inspiring me and calling me to good works, why do, shouldn't my primary focus be on me doing the things God's called me to do? And this is hard, you guys. It's the little things. We think ministry is what we do on a Thursday night. It's not. It's how we live every day in every single interaction we have, listening to what God has called us to do with that other human being, to stir up good works with each other. I remember the first time I was in a restaurant, somebody invited the waitress to come and pray with us for the meal. I was like dumbfounded. I was like, you can do that? And then you realize, wow, that stirred me up to good work. Not because that person told me to start doing it, but because I saw it happen and I was like, that was cool. And so now every time I'm in a restaurant, I'm praying, Lord, do you want me to invite this person to prayer? And, and you're seeking out the spirit on that. So I'm not being rude to that person. Like if they're in a busy shift, that's maybe not the time. But if it's a slow restaurant, you're the only table around or there's only two, three others, that waiter's stopping to chat a little bit. It's like, hey, do you want to pray with us? Is there anything I can pray for in your life? stirring up to good works. God looks at those good works. It's not that we're saved or not saved by good works, but we are held account to how we use the salvation God gave us and what we do with it. So it's not, a, it's not the criteria of us getting into heaven or not, but it is a criteria as to how many rewards and crowns we're going to get. Were we a champion for our king or were we a bad ambassador? This good work is worth more than all the oil. He doesn't even talk about the oil. He talks about the good work. And again, as Jesus has consistently done, it's about the heart. It's not about the stuff. The material stuff all fades away. At some point, the alabaster jar was going to break at, for something, right? The car will eventually go bad. My carpet will eventually get burn marks on it. It's just going to happen. Stuff decays. Door seals get chewed. Things like that happen. It's just stuff. But what matters to God is the good work that she did, the good stuff. It's a good investment for her to do this. That's a true thing. So a good work, the, the word there is kalos. It means lovely, beautiful, or precious. I think that should be translated precious work. She did something beautiful, you guys. Look at what she did, and you're criticizing her for it. But what she did here was beautiful. It's to be noted and remembered. For verse 7, he explains the beauty of this to them. He's teaching them. For you have the poor with you always. Oh, by the way, they're like, oh, you could have given this to the poor. The, frankly, we don't see that happening, right? So Judas doesn't take all his money and give it to the poor. He actually gives it to the scribes and elders to turn in Jesus in betrayal. 
right? So he's, he's going in just handing away the value of that ministry for no value. He gets 30 pieces of silver for it. He didn't give the 30 pieces to the, to the poor. He dumped it on the floor of the temple. So the, the whole, we should do this thing for the poor. Do the thing God's calling you to do right here and right now. And worry about that. But it's so hard to do. It's easier to abstract it. I'm just going to give money to some cause in the Amazon rainforest and throw in a little check here and a little, and then it's all taken care of. But that's not the heart God's looking for. You have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you can do them good. But me, you do not have always. She's done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body before burial. And assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Right? So it's what she's done that's important. It's not the flask of oil that got broken. And I love verse 8. Honestly, I'd put that on a t-shirt. She has done what she could. But that's all I have. When I go before the throne of heaven and there, and I'm standing there and Jesus steps in and goes, no, no, this is one of mine. We're not going to judge this person. He's done what he could. He did what I gave him to do. He did the things that he could do. So I, this, that line alone, those six words are a theology. It is the highest earth shattering praise that a human being can get from an almighty God. This one did what they could right? It's not the great wor- world things that matter. It's, it's the greatness of the heart that matters. And for each human being, God apparently made us different. He gave us different skills and talents, different abilities, and we're supposed to do what we can with what we have. When we see something to do, we're supposed to do it. I love that God doesn't expect any more of us than that. You see something that needs doing, you just do it. You don't ask permission. You don't think about it. It's a good work and you do it. On the other hand, God doesn't expect any less of us than that, right? And that's the convicting part to say they've done what they could. And I think back through my life and I can't honestly say I've always done what I could. Sometimes I chickened out. Sometimes I did half of what I could because I, I needed more time. So there's a, a conviction in that statement, but there's also a great sweet relief of that if we simply do what we can God loves us for that. So and I think again when you become and you say Lord I want to follow you with my life God first says get rid of all this sin in your life and he starts working it out and it takes years for some people. Lots of years. But if you're in the word every week, you're in fellowship every week, you're forcing yourself to worship and pray every week and you build those habits, suddenly you wake up a few years later and you go wow I just don't have all that sin in my life. I'm not perfect. I still screw up and I'm always working on stuff, but it's time to start thinking of phase two, which is what good works can I do with my life? How can I give back? All these people that have blessed me as I was a messed up dude working all this stuff out, how do I give back to those people? Here's the tough part. When you turn 50, a lot of those people have passed on, right? They're resting with their fathers. You don't get to give it back to them, but I know what Christians will say. If I'm not with you, give it to that next person coming up and along. All those struggles you had as a ministry to somebody who's in it right now. Pass it on. And the church has existed in that state for 2,000 years. Just Christians passing it on to other Christians. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And other people just come into the love of Christ as shown in the church because people know us by what we do. They know us by how we love each other. It's beautiful. She has done what she could. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Just the contrast between this wonderful nameless woman and this named person. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot's the town he comes from. It's like bragging. It's like saying, Judas from Minneapolis. Or uh, Judas from Edina. I don't want to pick on any Edina people. But it's, it, the Iscariot's like a badge of honor, right? It's Judas from the fancy town. And so here's the named person doing the lowliest of works and an unnamed woman doing the greatest of works. And this is why we have a Christian church that simply throws those kinds of priority things out the window. By removing the names from the last story, we have no reason given for the betrayal. We go straight from verse 9 to verse 10 with no explanation of why Judas is doing this. It is then assumed that he's doing this in response to the anointing. Here's somebody being anointed as king in a leper's house that might have just been too much for Judas. This guy has gotten too big for his britches. And a lot of people, this is where a lot of people think, why did Judas betray Jesus? What was he trying to accomplish? I don't think we need to get any deeper than that. The simple explanation is none. He just did it. And we don't know if he was trying to kill Jesus, but it does say he sought how he might conveniently betray him. In other words, turn him over to the scribes and Pharisees so they can shut this guy down. He's claiming to be God a little bit more than Judas is comfortable with. Maybe Judas didn't know he'd go for the cross. Maybe he did. Maybe he's jealous of Mary. He thinks that Iscariot man should get all the attention. You ever meet people like that? I should always get all the attention. And here's this nameless woman getting all the attention and grace from God, saying beautiful things like she's done what she could. She's done all she can. She's done a good work. And Judas is like, man, I've been working for three years. I've been doing way more than this. I never get that praise. So maybe it's jealousy. We don't know. So again, there's lots of theories around that. Clearly, he's upset with the seeming contentment of Jesus to be in a small fellowship, in a house, hanging out with people he loves. Maybe Judas wanted him to be the reigning Messiah gathering an army by this point. And he doesn't see an army. So all he sees is some guy calling himself God. And the blinders come on. Judas was one of the people Jesus sent out that did miracles in the name of Jesus, right? So however this pans out, something happens in Judas's heart where he's just done with it all and he seeks to betray him. I also want to note two things about that passage, verse 10 and 11. One, the priests were glad. What kind of evil is happy when they find out somebody's going to betray their friend? They're just happy. And they're happy because they didn't see a way in on this guy. But now they got one of his insiders and they're plotting and they're planning and they're just malicious. And they finally got one person that will speak a lie about this guy. And they're glad about it. And here's the other, here's the other nature of evil at the end of verse 11. It says, so that Judas might conveniently betray him. Like, what's the difference between simple betrayal and convenient betrayal? Laziness. Halfway. Like, if you're going to betray somebody, go all in and betray them. Have the guts to do it out loud. But Judas wants to do it all slippery. This is a sad combination. It is an extremely lukewarm, weak person that seeks to conveniently betray somebody. And it's likely because Judas knows he's not going to get any purchase if he does it out in the open. He's got to be sneaky about it. And, And you just think how sad this is. 
how, you know, that little glimpse into his character in those two sentences says a lot about Judas and who he is. Now Jesus celebrates a new kind of Passover, a new covenant. This is huge. Remember, we started with Passover. That's the context of this. And so now we're back to Passover after an anointing and after a betrayal. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. So verse 12 is putting that in there for the Gentile reader. In case you don't know, the feast of the unleavened bread is when they actually eat real food. So they've been eating crackers all week, and on the seventh day of the week, they kill that lamb, and no matter how fluffy and friendly it was, by seven days of eating crackers, you are ready to eat that lamb and take it into yourself, that thing that was sacrificed for you. So they kill the Passover lamb. Mark points that out, adding that detail. This is the day they'd kill the Passover lamb. People struggle with that because, wait a second, Jesus was crucified on the cross at 3 p.m. So how can this be the Passover? So there's ways to deal with that. First of all, you should know that on a Jewish day, it, what, when does the day start for Jews? Nighttime. It starts at sunset. Yeah. So... If they're eating this meal after the sunset, it may not be the lamb feast meal, but it's clearly on the day of Passover. And so we're going to notice the absence of a lamb at this meal. And that's partially because the lamb is sitting with them, talking to them. And so it would be inappropriate to have an animal be that lamb at this meal, because in the new covenant, Jesus is the lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins. So this is where we get all that language from. Uh, let's read it. His disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Great, dire great directions. Um, this would stick out like a sore thumb because in this period of time, women carried the water. I don't know why this is the case. I think this is a lot of lazy men because any job around this house where it requires heavy lifting we think in that house, that's not mom that does all that. It's Grant that does all that. Um, and because, you know, we put that all on Grant. But to make women do the heavy lifting, and this was an entire culture that did this, that just seems cruel because these were not small little water canisters. This wasn't filling up their coolie. This was going out to grab a huge barrel of water for the day for the household. These were massive weights. So Jewish women got strong. Maybe that's why they did it. But a man carrying the water in the first century is... Not typical. So he would stick out like a sore thumb. So Jesus is actually giving fairly good directions. You see a man carrying water, you follow him. Creepy-like, you know, sneaky in the corners. This guy starts realizing he's being followed. Um, it might be a sign that the woman in the household is sick. She's not able to do it. Or it could just be a sign that here's one guy who thinks for himself and says, I'm not going to make my wife carry the water. How's you know, and God seeks out one guy who's just a decent husband in the entire society. And that's the guy that's going to get used here, or at least this guy's house would be. If that's the case, or there's no woman in the household, that could be the case. And this is a, a single guy or somebody who's clearly come upon hard times or he thinks for himself, one of the two. Verse 14, wherever he goes in, say to that master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room. He was a wealthy man, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So first he rides in on a donkey, and now there's a prepared room. Let's just say this about Jesus. He knows other people other than his disciples. There's a Jesus network out there that he's tapping into. 
This guy, when you come up and say, with no name, that where is the guest room in which I might eat with the Passover? Just say that the teacher says this. Then this guy recognizes who the teacher was. In other words, Jesus has talked to thousands, and some of those people have committed their lives to him. My house is your house, Jesus. You ever need a place to stay? It's there. And he probably left thinking that would never get called on. And then two guys walk up saying, the teacher needs your house. Okay, you can have it. I told you you could have it. You could have it. So the same thing with the donkey, same situation. There's just this. And I kind of like the idea that Jesus had lots of friends. And a lot of them are ready to serve, but not called upon to serve. But their, their hearts are in the right place. And we, so we get these nameless people in the Gospels that Jesus just calls out and uses for these particular moments to set up our scriptures. I love that. Verse 16. So his disciples went out and came into the city, and they found it just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. So he prepared the Passover. Again, there's no mention of a lamb here. They're eating together the night before after the sunset, they're there. Jesus becomes the Lamb of God, and he came with them. Not they came, it's, and he came with the twelve. Do you see that? Because it could say in the evening they came, but it doesn't. It says in the evening he came with the twelve. And Judas then must be back with them. He's made his arrangements. We get more detail on this in Luke, but Mark just kind of skips over some of that. Um. The fact that it says with the 12 and Judas is back with them, you're not supposed to enter someone's house unless you have shalom with them. Jewish tradition. So when Judas walks through that door with somebody who he is betraying, he has broken shalom. This is a crime. It's a sin. You're not supposed to do that. And so to sit down and eat a meal with somebody that you don't have shalom with is one of the highest, devious, treacherous things you can do. When you break bread with somebody, you're supposed to have shalom with that person. And I think this is important. Next week, we're going to do communion. Think about what happens in this chapter around communion and how important it is. Like I got done with this chapter and I went to Steph and said, I think we should be more careful about taking communion and when we take it and how we take it. It's an open door to everybody, but there's a lot of heart work to happen before you do. You don't break bread with your family unless you have shalom with that family. And Jesus says, if you don't have peace with your brother, stop and don't put your gift on the altar. Go deal with the brother first and then come back and put your gift on the altar. And so we look at this covenant that happens and it says he came with the 12 and Judas then is with them. We can again start to see the villainy of Judas compound itself because sin doesn't come alone. It comes with friends. So everything just keeps piling up with this guy. He comes with a slightly bigger group, but it's still intimate. It's family. It's friends. Uh, it, the fact that he came with the 12 doesn't exclude that other people might be there too. So when you see the Da Vinci picture of the 12 people at the Last Supper, there's nothing biblically that says there were only 12 people. It just says that there were the 12. They were there and present. Now as they sat and ate, odds are the master of the house was probably with them too. Right? Whoever it was whose house they were at was probably sharing that pastor. You share with everybody in the household. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. So Jesus doesn't let the lack of shalom go. He calls it out. There's somebody at this table who's going to betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? Like, okay, check your heart. Is it? Like, you should know that. And another said, is it I? And he answered and said to them, is it, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. 
uh, so he's near. So if there's more people in the room, then that statement narrows it to just the 12. It's going to be one of the core 12. Um, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been as good for that man if he had never been born. Oh, it's one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The, the, the phrase there that dips with me in the dish is, again, that idea that we would say break bread together. That's the phrase we would use. But common in the first century was we would dip in the dish together. Because what you do, and this is great, you go to a good Italian restaurant, they still do this. You break the loaf of bread, but then there's a little dish of oil, some spices in there, and you dip that bread in the oil, and then you eat the bread. Now, at Passover, they're done with the unleavened stuff. They're eating the good fluffy stuff. So this is part of breaking bread together would be that first round of the meal, which would be the appetizer breads. And if you sit at a table and you dip bread with people, you're breaking bread with them. Don't miss the idea that that's an act of love and fellowship and peace between people. If you're going to make an alliance or call a truce with another kingdom or tribe, two kings would sit down at a table and they would break bread together. That we're, we're no longer enemies, we're now family. And so there is this beautiful thing happening here that as they eat and break bread together, they're calling themselves a family because Passover meal was supposed to be eaten with your intimate family. And the head of the household would kind of say these words and call it out. And so when he's eating with all these people that aren't biological family and he's dipping with them, he is calling them family. This is the act of a family. Don't miss the love here. In a few very graceful ways, Judas is getting a warning about what he's about to do before he does it. And this is true when we get to Kings, as Israel gets shut down, God gave them these graceful warnings that if they would have listened, they might have turned it or delayed it like Hezekiah did. So God's going to do a thing here, and he doesn't call out Judas publicly. Um, He knows darn well what Judas is up to, and it's giving Judas a chance to confess And so Judas is saying, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. I know that it's me, but they all ask one by one, is it I? So he's faking like he doesn't know that it's him. So his heart is twisting and getting harder. But I think for Jesus, there's a love here going, man, if if there's any way, Lord, for this guy's heart to unwind before he goes down this path, bring him back. And there's this graceful invitation telling everybody I know what's about to happen and there's somebody here that's about to do it. He's speaking in what we would call the Holy Spirit. The God has given him, and this isn't like a knowledge of the future, but it is a knowledge of the present, which we'd call a word of knowledge, right? And that's just a Christian term for God has revealed to the incarnate Jesus that there's somebody in the room that's going to do this. We do not know necessarily um, that Jesus, we don't know exactly how he knew this or what he knew about it, but we know that he's fully aware he's about to be betrayed. He even knows who's going to do it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. He broke bread, and he gave it to them and said, take, eat, huh, this is my body. Whoa. If you're a devout Jew, like, what did you just say? Like, that should stop you in your tracks. He's connecting the, un- the, the bread that they're breaking, that unleavened bread, Um, the unleavened flesh and they're breaking that up so they can have this beautiful meal coming up on Passover. Um, This is a simplification of a very particular Jewish practice. There are words that get recited at Passover. Jesus has no known sin. There's nothing to puff him up like leaven puffs up the bread. There's no emptiness in Jesus, right? The little empty spots that leaven makes in the bread. So when he cracks it and says, this is my body, he's claiming to have no sin. 
And we shouldn't miss that that's what's going on. So when we take something that has no sin and we consume it into our body at communion, think about what you're doing and the symbolism of that. That's huge. Right? I'm going to take the sinless body of Jesus and and I had better confess my sins before I do that. Because why would I take an incorrupted thing and put it into a corrupt body? That's defilement. If you think of the symbolism of this, and I don't want people to get too legalistic or hung up on that, but when he says take and eat, there's two commands there. One is to take it. That's an, a volunteer thing. You don't have to take the bread. Judas could have said, no thanks, I don't have shalom with you, and saved himself a compound sin. Then you have to eat it. You have to take it into yourself. There's an invitation to actually bring that in you. The unleavened bread at the beginning of the Passover is for, in in the Jewish tradition, anyone who hungers and anyone who's needy. And so there's no mention in this text of the bitter herb. All these things had symbolism. The bitter herb was to represent the bitterness of slavery. The salt water was to represent the tears that the Israelite people shed under the persecution of, of Pharaoh. With Jesus, there's no tears and there's no bitterness. But there is the bread. There is this unleavened bread. And he says, eat. So both the bread and the cup are taken and they're symbols of things we ingest. We bring them into ourselves. So it's not good enough to just know that there is a God. There's the idea that we take God into ourselves. And I know that's science fiction, but it's true at the same time. We invite God because he's not going to force his way in. He's not a demon. So we welcome God. We invite God to come into us. We take God and we eat God. We read his word. We do his word. So it's not, it's not enough to just have it in your hand. You have to make it part of who you are. The images are of food. Food's essential. We don't live without it. You can't do God's work without taking the food because you won't have it. And this is part of what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter. Peter just doesn't have it. He's trying to do it on his own to not betray Jesus, but he does anyways. He does the thing he doesn't want to do because he just doesn't have that ingesting going on. So Jesus is still teaching them. So it's the key to their health and survival physically, but also spiritually. Here, the meal makes us part of the history too. That's the beautiful part of an annual tradition. New generations can be part of it. When we take communion next week, we're taking the same communion that these disciples took at this meal. Spiritual power and force of that act is the same power and force as though Jesus was in the room with us. Right? And there's some wacky Christian traditions like this is actually Jesus' blood. It transforms in the cup. Nonsense. It still tastes like grape juice. But the symbolism there should not be underwhelmed. It should not be underestimated how important and powerful that symbolism is. You're taking the gift of Jesus Christ. You're bringing it into your life. You're not just holding it. You're drinking it and ingesting it. It's our story too. It's our family too. And the family has changed. We've got different faces. We've got a few Gentiles like me in the room. But it's still the family of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual family that gathers together. We break bread as a community. It's a social thing. And it's you meet with other people and do it in the body of Christ. You cannot do communion at home by yourself because you're not in communion. You're not in a family. It is hard when you visit another church, and I, I still kind of wonder about this, should I break bread when I'm visiting a church? But that's not my family. And the answer is absolutely. You're part of the body of Christ. Yes, you're in that family. You just don't know people yet. Right? They're distant relatives, but they're still relatives. But it is between you and God. You're doing a vertical assessment as you take that communion. Verse 23, then he took the cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. So then he took the cup. That's typically an image of the judgment of God. This is my blood. I'm going to pay the price for the judgment of God. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, wake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. That's the Old Testament reference to the cup. It's judgment. The cup of wrath gets poured out. And you have drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and you have wrung them out. You're drinking every last bit of it. That doesn't mean to lick out your communion cup, but the idea is you're taking the wrath of God that Jesus' blood evaporates. So you take that blood and you drink it. Jesus takes an actual cup, but there is a spiritual image here that his blood has taken the wrath of God and evaporated it. Right? It's like when you put food dye into a glass of water. Right? The, the dye just goes, and now that water is green. Right? And that's what Jesus' blood does with God's wrath. You take that wrath and it looks super scary and ugly, but Jesus' blood goes into it, now it's not wrath. It's covered by his blood. The imagery of it is so powerful. He says he promised to do so. Um, wait, when did the promise happen? Psalm 116.13, write that in your margin if it's not already there. God promised in Psalm 116.13, spoke, spoken in his, himself, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So there is an idea that there would be a cup that isn't a cup of wrath, but a cup of salvation. And it's at this moment with the disciples, Jesus is transferring the imagery from the Old Testament wrath to the New Testament salvation. Same cup, same practice. When we t- break bread and take the, the, the bread and the, the grape juice at communion, we're doing that simple act of the beginning of Passover feast, Passover unleavened bread. We don't call it that because it's something different. But it says, which, what is she promised to do so, which is shed, Um, Jesus speaks in the present tense about the shedding of his blood. Jesus knows they're really close. I think it's an interesting way to phrase that. He doesn't say which will be shed. He says that it is shed. It's already done because God has already willed for it to happen. And that's an interesting kind of perspective from God. Again, science fiction. For God, it's all present tense because he's outside of time. And we see evidence of that when we see God speaking, even in the form of Jesus. The Jews had suffering and salvation. Jesus' sinless suffering, and we're going to have the blood of his salvation. In other words, we don't have to do the suffering for our own sin. So there's a transfer there. He says that it has been shed for many, indicating that it's more than just the people in the room. This isn't just for the disciples. This is a practice he wants us to do until he returns. I just love, I love the history of it. This is my blood. Like, we get excited when we have an old house with wood trim that's 100 years old. Look at this beautiful old house. But we're practicing with communion. We practice a practice that goes back 2,000 years. If you count Passover, it goes back 6,000 years. We're part of a long, storied tradition. We're not just living in today. We're not just worried about our little concerns. We're carrying forward a mission of God that's gone on since the beginning of the world, since it was thought up. And so God says, remember me with this act, this tradition that we have. This is my blood. It's probably that they good that they partake before he says that. I don't know if you noticed the order, but if they said, this is my blood before the partaking, you might have had disciples going, wait, what? What are we doing here? We're not vampires. So they all drank it. They know darn well that it's wine. And so th- then he says, this is my blood. In other words, because of the ordering of things, 
it's a symbolic statement. Or they would have drank it and started spinning it out on the table, and this narrative would be very, very different because we know that blood doesn't taste like wine at all, right? So, and I'm speaking about that because we have some people in the room that had some Catholic kind of backgrounds. Uh, it's not actual blood, and the disciples at the First Communion didn't think it was actual blood. They drank it, and then he said, this is my blood. So he's telling them this is a symbol of what that is. The disciples then had the meaning given to them after they tasted a very normal wine, or the story would have gone different. He says, this is a new covenant. This is the big deal. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Nothing short of replacing the covenant of the law of Moses. When he says new covenant, they know exactly what the old covenant was. They've been living that way since they were kids. He's changing the entire thing. This is next generation kind of stuff. So there's no mention of a lamb that was slain for the sins of the household, passing sin over these households. This is the second covenant, and Jesus is the lamb. So God promises a new covenant. Um, I think this is, I'm going to wait for you to turn here. So you ready? Go to Jeremiah 31. It's kind of halfway through your Bible. To your left. You there? I'm waiting for you to turn. It's worth reading. can mark it. Mom tells me when I have us go to other verses, I don't wait long enough. So. What verse? Uh, chapter 31, we're going to start at verse 31. Everybody there? This is cool. Nothing Jesus does is like out of nowhere. Like he, it's all connected. And I just love these connections. Here's Jeremiah 31. Now, Jeremiah is speaking at the time Israel's about to, or northern Judah, kingdom of Judah, is about to fall. And Jeremiah is the prophet that oversees Babylon hauling them all away in punishment. So when he's writing, he writes about these promises of there's going to be a better day, Israel. You're getting punished right now, but you're going to endure going off to Babylon. And there's going to be something new that happens. And this is what he says. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Israel, when Jeremiah is speaking, has long been destroyed. Not according to the covenant I made with them with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, commemorated by Passover. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So when Jesus says, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many, two things are going on. One, he's clearly referencing the promises of the Old Testament, that there would be a new covenant. Two, the Jeremiah passage in verse 31 says, thus says the Lord, I will make a new covenant. So when Jesus says, this is the new covenant, and he makes it, he's claiming to be God. Again, it's indirect but to anyone with ears to hear, they hear exactly what he's doing. He's assuming the role of God. This has either that warms your heart and melts it because you realize the almighty God came to eat a meal with me, or it hardens your heart like Judas. And you think, this is nonsense. This guy thinks he's God. But th there would be no mistaking only God was made the first covenant and only God is going to make the second covenant. But here's God sitting down to make a covenant. And if the story ended here, Jesus is just a lunatic that thought he was more important than he was. This is why the resurrection is so important. 
Because what he's saying here and now, if he doesn't rise from the dead, he's just a nut. And nuts don't start new religions. You know, they start cults, right? And then the cult's over when they die. But nuts that rise from the dead get people's attention. And to the point where 11 of these, well, they add one, 10 of the remaining 11 disciples go to their death claiming that he rose from the dead. They didn't back off an inch because they know darn well they're going to rise too. Go ahead, kill me if you want to. It's real, and I'm telling you it's real. They stake their lives on it. John got to live to a ripe old age. Softy. The resurrection is the sealing of the covenant. When you make a covenant, old school, Abraham style, you killed the sacrificial lamb, you put half of it here, half of it here, and you walk between them, and then the other person would walk between them. Great scene with Abraham, and God waits for Abraham to fall asleep, because it's not, I'm not your equal, Abraham, but I am going to make a covenant with you. So when this happens, and we see the lamb of God on the cross of Rome, uh, there is definitely the idea that God is keeping up his end of the bargain. Here's the thing. If Jesus is the bread, he's the unleavened bread, he's the sinless example of humanity, death can't take him. Like, you ever try to put a dollar bill into a vending machine and it keeps kicking it back out to you? And you're, then you got to straighten it and you try to find a hard edge, and dig all the corners. and We're trying to make it perfect so that the machine will accept it. But if the machine's looking for a flat bill and you give it a wrinkled bill, the machine just spits it back out. Death is the same way. Death was the curse given to given for humanity's sin. So if you try to put a sinless human into the death machine, it's just going to spit it back out. It can't handle it. And so Jesus going into this position is actually going to die um, because he's pure. He can't stay dead because that curse is unjust for a sinless person. Death can't cling to him. So when he says, my blood shed for many, he's talking about a covenantal image of a sacrifice that gets killed. It is the blood of that sacrifice. Blood represents life in the Old Testament. It is that life being given, meaning that if I go into covenant with you over a dead animal, then if I break that covenant, my life is forfeit. Do you get that? This is a big deal in a covenant. Like, think about this if you're going to say vows in a marriage, right? If you make a vow over a life that's been taken, that means you're staking your life on that vow. And so when Jesus says, this is my blood shed for you, he said, I'm giving you my life. And what's asked in return is that you give your life too. That's only fair. And so when you break that covenant, you are then forfeiting the opportunity to miss out on death which I don't understand when people don't want that opportunity. Maybe they think they're perfect and death won't get them. But I'd like to evade death very, very much. I'd like to skip the whole death thing. So when we see people, when Christians referring to people, we say they went to sleep. They rest with their fathers in the Old Testament. For those that follow and serve God, there's no death for us. There's simply a period of time between when we, when we fall asleep and when we wake up is the language the Bible uses. A sinless Jesus gets spit out because of his purity. I want to get spit out because of the blood that was shed for me. That's the covenant. He gave his life so I don't have to give mine. Present tense, blood shed for many. Again, it's in the present tense. The covenants then were sealed. The sacrifice of the lamb put a life on top of that covenant. The blood then that gets ingested means I'm taking that as my blood too. I'm taking it into me. 
So if either side breaks it, that communion is gone. It's the one thing God can't forgive is the Holy Spirit's done a work in your heart and you deny it and walk away. God, it's done. The covenant's over. That's not the same as backsliding. That's a decided, I no longer want the Holy Spirit in my life and you blaspheme it and kick it out of your heart. Right? That's not the same as screwing up once in a while. Verse 25, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, assuredly, we know that that's true. Uh, There is a sealing of a covenant. It happens on this meal right here. And I will drink it anew, which means there's going to be another feast. So Revelation talks about this. We won't get too deep into it right now. There is a feast called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb which is Jesus having a meal with us again. And it hasn't happened yet that I'm aware of. There's a covenant that's based on this promise that Jesus is going to take this communion with them, but he won't be with us for at least 2,000 years. But there will be a time when he does this with us again, and he'll be at the table with us. That's going to be a big table, a very big table. And he's going to do it with us and take communion. When we take communion next week and take the sinless body of Jesus and the covenantial blood of Jesus into ourselves, think of the gravity of that and what that means. And we're doing it in his absence. You know, it's, it's like people in an Irish bar lifting up a mug in the absence of their friend. Who's, who's gone and away, you know, here's to Mike who's not with us. May, you know, he be blessed in what he's doing. But when we take communion, we do that knowing Jesus isn't with us in physical presence. He's with us in spirit, but he's not with us for that particular communion. But we're still in covenant with him. It's a vertical communion, and it's a horizontal family. Awesome stuff. When I drink it new, do this in remembrance of me until we get to eat together again. And again, you guys think, you think I joke about how much the Lord emphasizes meals together. I think it's one of the natural ways God gave us for worship. There's something awesome about eating with your friends. Do it new in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's a much bigger theme in the book of Matthew, and I think I expanded on that idea of kingdom in Matthew. Mark doesn't highlight that as much, but he is just quoting what Jesus said here. This is a promise to all people that was made back in Jeremiah. Going from Jeremiah 31 still, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We remember the covenant. We don't remember the sin. We let that part go. Ah, man. Jeremiah, he's such a downer normally, but then he's got those gems in there, right? And then Jesus predicts Peter's denial. He just said, there's one of you that's going to betray me. And Peter's like, not me, not me. They're all like, is it, well, am I going to do it? And here he's pointing out Peter. Probably people left the meal thinking Peter was going to be the one to betray Jesus. Don't you think? Like they're thinking that it's Peter that's going to do it. And Judah's thinking, great, the heat's off of me. But here's how that happens. In verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me in this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Notice he says stumble. With, he says there's one of you that will betray me. There's one of you that's going to go the wrong path. The rest of you are going to stumble. 
In other words, stumbling isn't so horrible. And Christians, we can't beat ourselves up about stumbling. We need to get back up and keep, keep moving towards the journey. So there's a difference between betraying the Lord and blaspheming the Holy Spirit and stumbling and backsliding and getting back up and trying to do it again. And for the humble heart that just keeps trying over and over, there is something holy about that. This is why I like the movie Rudy, right? He just gets beat to crap for half the movie, but he just keeps getting up over and over and over again. And it's such a great image of what God expects of us. The sheep will be scattered, but after I've been raised, verse 28, I'll go before you to Galilee. I like that he's giving instructions for them after the resurrection. He's telling them, I'm going to raise from the dead. They should be joyful in that. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot 29. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Okay. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. I like how Peter does this thing where it was, there was a general sentiment there. They all were saying the same thing. It wasn't just Peter. That's him defending himself, I think, from the other gospel accounts. No, we were all, come on, guys. Like, we were all saying that sort of thing to Jesus. We're not going to betray you. We won't leave you. We're in it till the end, man. Verse 26, note that they, they sang a hymn. Wouldn't you like to know what hymn that was? What song you sing before you know your friend's going to go away and suffer? Or what song you sing when you know that resurrection's about to happen and the history of the world's about to change? Which song was that? But we're not told, leaving it wide open to our imagination. So pick your favorite music genre. You can plug that in there, and that's what they're singing. I'm thinking they didn't feel like singing. This would be a hard moment to feel song in your heart. And, I, and, I, and that's what made me think of that, sing hallelujah to the Lord. Sometimes hymns aren't praise, they're worship. And they're not exuberant, they're reverent. And I think this hymn would have been one that was a hard one to sing, but it's not about how you feel. It's about doing what pleases God. And worship is like that. Worship's a sacrifice in Leviticus. So we give to God what God wants, and God likes to hear us sing for some reason. He gave us voices. And maybe they, maybe they sang because they didn't feel like it, and they wanted to find their joy again, which is why we say it's rejoicing. They're putting on their joy, even though they don't feel it in their heart. It's time to surrender, to sacrifice in praise, and this is probably the best biblical example of people praising, even though their hearts maybe are broken. So they sing a hymn. Uh, Hallel is the word for a series of hymns that were sung at, ha- at Passover. Psalms 116 through 118 are three psalms that you sang at Passover. So you'd eat the meal. The head of householder would say some things. This is the bread of affliction from Egypt, blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, this is the bread. It's my body. And then they would sing hymns. They'd sing these songs together as a family. Uh, right in the middle of your Bible, go to Psalm 118. I'm going to wait for you on this one too. I, again, these connections are so powerful here. Here's a few lines from a song they would have been singing. Again, if you don't know where Psalms is, just split the Bible in the middle and you'll be in the Psalms. Psalm 118, we'll start at verse 14. These are words they would have sang every year at Passover for hundreds of years. And, they, and they're, they're words they were meant to have memorized because of this moment. 
So verse 14, Psalm 118, the Lord is my strength and song and is become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation in the tabernacle of the righteous, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live, declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sore, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. How awesome is that? They've been singing this for hundreds of years. The Lord is my salvation. Even using the phrase, the right hand of the Lord, like this is the Messiah. And now that the Messiah is here, I don't have to die anymore. I don't have to fear it. I don't have to worry about it. It might be a little painful for a day or so at the very end, but the Lord's going to raise me and resurrect me for all eternity. I'm ready to go. Like what kind of culture does that create? (laughs) Jewish culture, right? Just that fatalism of I'm going to die, but a hope mixed in with it and that the Lord is my salvation. And here it's all literally true. Jesus is the right hand. He is valiantly going to the cross. And with this song, just a little line in here, he is rejoicing and singing. And so when it says they sang hymns, that's a fulfillment of a prophecy promised back in Psalm 118 that they would have memorized. He's not given to death. He is worthy of praise. So we give him our praise. But after I've been raised, verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee. There's the instructions. Peter says to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. This is arrogance and pride. Peter has to check his heart. You think you can do this walk on your own? You're totally wrong. And we're going to get to Gethsemane where he's proven wrong. He sees and has a love for Jesus, but he can't imagine that that love for Jesus would ever be changed by his circumstances. This is an honest mistake for Peter because he's thinking right now what I feel in my heart is I'll go to my de- I'll go to the deathbed with you. But when it comes to it, he gets scared off by a little girl because he's just worried about what people will think too much. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me not once, but three times, completely deny me. Right? So we just need to know that for now. Jesus is calling the shots here. He knows everything that's going to happen. There is a supernatural foretelling of everything. The revelation that Jesus has, I hope you pick this up. I don't think Jesus is saying this to condemn Peter. I don't think he's accusing Peter. He's simply telling Peter the truth. So that when it happens, Peter isn't devastated. He's just tested. And this is what God does with believers. He tells us the truth and it feels a little bit like, dang, Lord. But he's telling us that so that when it happens that way, we know the Lord's in control. This is wonderful. So Peter will deny him three times. And when it happens and the cock crows, he's devastated, but his heart gets humbled because he realized he missed something. He went into the battle without having any weapons. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus says what's going to happen, but in grace, just like with Judas, he gives Peter a chance to not have that happen. He teaches them about praying. And he goes to Gethsemane, it's the next scene, and he says, here's some prayer, because he's showing them how to prepare for the battle. He says, you're not going to die me three times. He says, yes, you are. Then he says, more vehemently, in his flesh, he's totally sure that he can do this thing called faith. But he doesn't understand that it's not Peter's assurance that matters, it's the Holy Spirit giving him the ability to overcome that matters. This is the mistake that I think virtually every God-fearing Christian makes at some point in their journey. We try hard to please God instead of trusting God to give us the ability to overcome in those situations. 
Peter's doing it on his own strength, and he needed to do it on the strength of the Holy Spirit. And they're two different, and they're so close. And Peter, like all of us in this room, we love Jesus. We want to do everything for Jesus. But when you try it on your own, you will fail. Oh, I won't fail. I'm doing it. I'm going there. No, 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 no. You're going to fail three times before the day's over. That's, it's an immediate, ongoing, lifestyle kind of thing. You'll fail in every situation if you don't do one thing. You have to pray. So he takes them out to pray, verse 32. I just, Jesus is just showing them how to do it. And again, I don't think this is to accuse. It's to give them the understanding that after the resurrection, after all this happens, the disciples in the book of Acts are seen praying all the time. They learn the lesson. Ah, this is how it works. And it's so easy. Lord, when I pray about it, I win all these victories. And it just keeps happening that way. And, it's, and, and there's this idea that that's how God works. They all said likewise. They all had to learn this lesson. So verse 32, they came to a place, um, and we'll cover Gethsemane, and then we'll wrap up for today. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane, which means oil press, by the way. Don't miss the imagery of oil getting pressed. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. That's the instruction. Sit while I pray. Just chill. Don't try to fight this. Don't try to create a game plan. Don't have committee meetings to determine your, your five-year goals for the new church. Just sit and let God do his thing. This is where the Spirit gets pressed. Oil throughout the Old Testament is an image of the Holy Spirit. And this is the testing of the Spirit. Uh, so this is a great kindness. I, I also want to point out that they left the house they ate in because of the ruckus that's about to happen due to the betrayal. Isn't it nice that Jesus didn't do that in somebody's house? He went out to a garden space. That was really gracious to his host that put him up for the, the, the commune. They could have hung out in comfort, but they go outside in the middle of the night to hang out in a garden so that when they come to claim him, they're not messing up somebody's house. So I, I just I want to point out that I think Jesus is pretty awesome. Verse 33. Then he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch. Unlike a sheep, Jesus knows what's coming. I'm encouraged by the fact that being troubled and being distressed is not a sin. Or you'd have to argue Jesus is a sinner. Right? It's not a sin to be upset about things at all. And sometimes people are like, man, I'm just, my, my soul, how does he say it? Is exceedingly sorrowful. That's a, an absolute exclamation point on that. His soul is just devastated. Think about this. He went a little farther and he fell on the ground. Like, you ever been at that point where you can barely stand? You're just exhausted in the spirit, in emotionally, spiritually. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, two names there. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. What cup's he talking about? The same one he shared with his friends in that meal. The cup of wrath. Take that cup of wrath away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. When Jesus prays, we're going to break it down. If it were possible, is there any other way to save humanity? anything else, Lord, because God's a big God. Is there any other path? And the answer is no. And this is the part the world struggles with. There's one way to evade death. We're not a universalist world. God didn't make it that way. So if you want to evade death, listen to the guy who did it. 
Buddha didn't evade death. Muhammad's still in the grave. Confucius, he's still dead, wrote a good book. Those people are gone, long gone. Listen to the one guy who beat death. There's one way. This had to be agony for Jesus. He's the incarnate God. Frankly, being incarnate after being omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and to, to put yourself in a human body and limit some of those things for a season, that had to be torture. It's a miracle Jesus stayed in that body for 33 years, starting out as an infant. He knows the weight of sin. He knows the depth of evil in a way that we could never know. We live through life and sin's even kind of a little appealing to us, but for an almighty Jesus, he knows exactly how awful it is. He knows what separation from God looks like, and he knows he has to do it even for a moment on that cross. And he'd like to avoid the pain. If at all possible, Lord, I'd like to miss this. Um, This isn't a sin to think, Lord, I'd like to have it easy if I could. And I think we all pray that way. We think about the greats in our faith that have gone to their death, the martyrs, and we should be really grateful we live in a country where they just don't like us. They don't stone us or hang us. And I think it's a huge blessing and a perfectly reasonable thing for Christians to say, I'd like to avoid persecution if I can, and I'd like to sing songs with my friends and eat meals on Sundays and live a life. And if that's okay, God, if that's your will, I would love that as a blessing. He's shed, he's going to shed the ability to communicate with God. And before the sins put upon him on the cross, he's using every possible moment to be with God, to be holy and uncorrupted by sin, but then to have to put on sin and to touch it. You ever have things you don't want to touch? Like, let's say, a dead body or a bird in a grill on the truck, Right? There's certain things we don't want to touch. And God Almighty in all his purity, he's going to have to touch that. And it's repulsive to every part of who he is. He's pure and eternal for all time. But the only thing that balances the scale is something pure and eternal having to deal with the ugliness of sin. There's only one way. If there's any other way, then this prayer would provide that or there would be a revelation to it. But there's not. This is the dead end. This is the, the, the point at which God himself gets there and there's no other way to save humanity. To be contrary to hardship is modeled in Jesus, but to be obedient into it is also modeled by Jesus. We don't like drama and stress. We don't like hardship and conflict. But if we have to, we will. That's the strength of Christians for 2,000 years. We bend, but we don't break. You want to be like Jesus? You want to follow him? Here's how to do it. Abba, Father. Relate to God both as your king, as your father with authority, but Abba, your father who loves and is a friend with you. I think we have a church right now that leans towards Abba sometimes, the larger Church of America, but don't forget the father part where there's a reverence and a position that we acknowledge. My friend, dad, my father and head of my household, Jesus uses both. There's a relationship that's intimate, Abba, and there's a relationship that's obedient, Father. All things are possible for you. When Jesus heads towards trouble, he recognizes that God's above all of it. He's he's stronger than any of this stuff. So there's a correct acknowledgement of God in this prayer. Take this cup away from me. Again, Jesus is modeling for his disciples, and he told these three disciples to listen to this prayer. Jesus, you want to not, or Peter, you want to not betray me three times? This is how to do that. 
You go before God and say, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Help me not betray Jesus three times. And Peter should be praying these prayers. He should be listening to Jesus and praying them. And if he did, he'd be spiritually equipped for the battle to come. Instead, he goes into battle with no equipping. And he fails. But he learns. Nevertheless, in the Greek, it means but. It's a neutered adjective, which I like because I just said this was a dead-end path. Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless. But if that's a dead-end, Lord if that's a cut-off adjective, if that's an interruption of the subject matter, then what comes after is simply more important that one comes before that word. Here's the other thing. In the Greek, that word is Allah. <laughs> Just a side note. Allah, um, if that's a dead end, if there's nothing there, then I'm going to do God's will instead. Not what I will, but what you will. Think of a direct measure of maturity in walking in the faith. When we start in our faith, we always talk to God about what we want. Lord, help me with this. Lord, do this. Lord, save this person I know. Lord, and we're always going to God with what we want, what we're troubled with, what we're anxious about. And we say, God, please. And those are good prayers. We see lots of those in the Bible. But as we mature and, and try to get more like Jesus, I think a higher and higher percentage of our prayer life has to be what God wants what God's looking for. And I, and I like that. God help me is the first kind. God use me is the second kind. God use me. However you want it, Lord, whatever your will is. Instead of saying, here's my agenda, Lord, here's what I got planned. We go, Lord, praise you for what you did here instead of my plan. I love your agenda. It's beautifully the works of your hands. Instead of saying, Lord, I want a better life. We say, Lord, I want the life you ordained for me. And I know it's going to be a ride. But I want what you have, not what I have. What an awesome set of prayers. Not what I will, but what you will. Jesus sees the trouble coming. He didn't try to come up with a plan for it. He just said to the Lord, I'm in either way. If I can avoid the cup, I'm in. If I have to go do this thing, I'm in. So he takes the cup at the Last Supper in peace. But he takes the cup here knowing exactly what's in it. He had fellowship with his brothers. Now he's alone by himself. He had song and, and hymns being sung at the communion of the table. Now he's by himself. Jesus is going to win all the spiritual battles. And some people argue it's this prayer where he wins the spiritual battle of the cross. This is it. Jesus submits to doing this. And spiritually, it's, at this point, it's already done. It doesn't matter what Caesar says it does, or the Pontius Pilate says. doesn't matter what the high priest says. It's at this prayer and at this point where Jesus has made his decisions in the present tense to deal with anything that comes in the future. I like that. Not what I will, but what you do. I don't get it, Lord. I want something else. But in faith, I'm going to give it to you. It's all yours, God. Do what you want. I'm in. So we win our spiritual battles with that prayer. So you get Christians and they're just struggling with everything. Everything's like going uphill. There's stumbling blocks all over the place. The rooster's crowing in their life and they don't know what's going on. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and look at how Jesus trained his disciples to pray. He said, watch and pray. That's the two commandments. Watch how I pray. You pray the same way. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping. So, so much for watching. Which makes me wonder, if they fell asleep, Maybe that's why this prayer is kind of short. <laughs> Maybe they only wrote down the first part. 
Or maybe when Jesus is with them 30 days after the resurrection, he reminds them of this and said, if you weren't sleeping, this is what I prayed in the garden. Can you write this down this time? Because this is what you missed, Peter. This is why you couldn't get it. It's you didn't understand that this is what I was showing you. So you wonder all those lessons Jesus gave after the resurrection when he's walking and hanging out and teaching the disciples. I think they had to go back and Jesus had to tell them what these prayers were. So he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, test lest you enter into temptation. Peter, you're going to, you just said you weren't going to fall into temptation, but now you're not watching and praying. You're going to fall into temptation. You're going to lose that battle. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's spirit was like, I'm with you, Jesus, but he doesn't understand the power of the flesh to fail. The flesh is an uncanny ability to fail. Peter was ready to die, but he can't stay awake, right? It's not the conflict that's the hard thing. It's the sloth. It's just being tired. Lord, I've worked all day. I'm wore out. I just want to have a meal at the restaurant. I don't want to talk to that guy at the gas station that looks like he's having a bad day because I just want to get home and play games. Right? The, the primary temptation for Peter isn't the fight. It's the passiveness. It's that he wants the fight. So he says to Peter, Simon. By the way, Jesus gave him the name Peter. So for him to go back to Simon had to be kind of a slap in the face at this point. You know, he said, you're Peter, you're the one I'm going to build my church on. But at this point, he's not talking to a church builder. He's talking to just a man, a man who failed to pray. And he goes back to the old name, calls him Simon. That had to sting. He had to be getting Peter's attention here. Verse 34, the, the command was to watch. In verse 34, or in verse 38, it says, watch and pray lest you... So. Jesus, in, in chapter 13, was all about, remember last week, it was all about watch and pray. All this stuff's going to happen, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. And we get here and we're seeing an example of that at a very small level. He told them to watch and pray and pray like Jesus did, and, and they fall asleep and they fail to do it. It's a small example that Peter can't obey God without prayer. And we, this, is why, this is why Satan loves to get us away from prayer. We're too busy for prayer. We don't have time for prayer. Our mind wanders during prayer. Discipline yourself. Start talking to the Lord. This is part of what Peter preaches to people is, I screwed up. So he's getting up in front of people t- telling this story. And this story is about how he messed up. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Alignment to God's filling of our cup before sin ever shows up is the battle. The small act of praying and watching Jesus, this is where the battles get won. That's the battleground. You want a big fight on the street doing apologetics arguments? Start praying that God will give you gentle opportunities to change a heart. It's not something we plan for or organize for. It's something we submit to. And that's a huge difference. What he's trying to teach Peter here. I found you sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? It's not like Jesus didn't know that he was sleeping or not. Jesus has told Peter that he's going to fail, but now he's showing them why he's going to fail. He tells him, and then he shows them. And I think this is set up for later. Jesus is pointing it out. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, knowing what we're talking about here. And I think it's like Jesus trying to say, like, I just want to point this out to you, Peter, because after you screw up, then let's talk. You try it your way first, and then I'm going to show you my way. 
And my way is going to build a church that endures for 2,000 years. Your way won't even get through the day. And Christians throughout those 2,000 years have realized the truth of this promise. Jesus can do all of this alone. He doesn't need the disciples to go to the cross. But we as disciples need Jesus to do anything in the kingdom. We have to have him. So Jesus knows the flesh can't do the work. He teaches this lesson. No matter how devout you are, no matter how holy you think you are, if you're not prayerful and watchful for the opportunities, good luck with having any fruit in your, in your spiritual life. You won't be able to do it. You have to watch and pray. Verse 39, again he went away and he prayed and he spoke the same words. So he, he's warning them and then he's doing it again and again. Like, see, this is how it works. And when he returned, verse 40, he found them asleep again. Their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him, which is another way to say it's late at night and they're totally out of it. The not know what to answer him is just a colloquialism for they were, they were out of it. <laughs> like he couldn't even wake them up kind of sleep. It's two, three in the morning. Like, we can get that, right? But it's 2, 3 in the morning, the night before the world's going to change. Stay awake. <laughs> get it together. Neither were they answering is the literal translation of that. They did, and, and neither were they answering. So they're not responding to what Jesus is saying. Verse 41. Then he came the third time, and he said to him, It's interesting that he said Peter would deny him three times. And then he tried to show him prayer three times. And then when he, he, redeem, or he brings Peter back... He asks him if he loves him how many times? Three. He, it's going in these sets of three, and, and that connects these stories together. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer's at hand. It's too late. You are told to watch and pray, and all of a sudden, the, the, the enemy comes on when, you don't even, when you're sleeping. So at this point, Jesus is ready for the spiritual battle. Peter is not. Jesus is going to win the spiritual battle. Peter will not. So their failure to watch and pray um, is why Jesus won and they don't. So Peter's going to deny him three times. And he got three chances to do this right. Are you sleeping and resting? Uh, the are you still in verse 41, I don't know about your translation, but are you still is not in the Greek. In any transcript. I don't know why it was added. But then he came to him, verse 41. Then he came to him the third time and said to them, sleeping and resting. Or literally the Greek says, sleep on now and take rest. It's sufficient. In other words, I'm going to still work with you. I mean, there, there's, and that to me changes the whole tone. When it, he walks up and says, sleeping and resting? Enough. It sounds like he's upset. But in the Greek, when you look at the words, sleep on now and take rest, it's sufficient. That doesn't sound like he's upset. It sounds like he's, he's planting seeds for a lesson that they're going to learn. And I think this is one of the worst translations I've seen as we've gone through the Bible. Like it just changes the whole tone of the conversation. It's more like he's looking over them like a loving father, Abba. And he's seeing his disciples just sacked out. And he's just like... Sleep on. You guys get your rest. You're going to need it. You're not going to win this battle. At least get your sleep. You know? And so, for those around us, as we're growing and learning in the faith, for a Lord, a God, to say the word sufficient there, um, and, 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 and again, it is enough is the word sufficient in the Greek. It's sufficient. It's good enough for now. 
is, is the way a good teacher acts. Like, I'm going to take what I can get right now. When a kid draws you a little crayon cartoon picture, you throw that thing on the fridge. Good enough for now. I love what I'm seeing. You guys are trying, you're doing your best, but there's certain things we just can't get without maturity and age. So he's giving them time to grow. He's invited them to watch, but in the end, he watches them. And this is Jesus, right? He invites us to be part of the ministry, but in the end, he ministers to us. And there's just this flow of living water that comes out of our God to not only take on his own part of the covenant, but he takes on our part too. And he takes our load on him. The hard part here is that in the flesh, we don't see the gravity, the urgency. Everything's well in the garden. They just had a nice meal together. They're out there praying in the garden. They don't know what's about to happen, but God does. And that's true of this world and the lives that we live too. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, where we're going to be tomorrow. So if your heart isn't right with God, don't fall asleep on that. Don't go to bed tonight without amending your relationship with a living God who watches over you and says it's sufficient for now. Repent, turn, and do the will of God in your life. There's no other path. Oh, I just screwed up yesterday. I screwed up the day before. I've been in the Word for 20 years and I keep screwing up. Okay, repent, turn, do your best tomorrow. It's sufficient. Give him your heart at every opportunity you can and renew that covenant daily if you have to. God's still asking that question to us. Are we awake or are we sleeping? Are you alive to the things of the Spirit or are you just taking a nap every week? And that question of are you resting? Are you sleeping? Are you prepared in prayer or aren't you? Because I think in mercy, God doesn't use us to minister to others when we're not in prayer because he knows we're going to lose that battle and it's just going to be discouraging. We're not going to see the fruit. But for those that are faithful in prayer, not knowing what tomorrow brings, I'm just going to stay faithful in prayer. Those people just seem to have opportunities all the time. Like we have people in our fellowship. You know who I'm talking about. They're always having those interactions. But I know they're also always in prayer for those interactions. They've prepared for them. They're set up before the hardship comes, before the conversation happens. The hour has come, behold. Let me emphasize that right now is the time to do this. It's not this afternoon. It's as we pray, as we close our teaching for today. Right now is the time to do that. Don't wait. Jesus never says wait and get to your spiritual life later. He says throw away the world so you can save your soul. Put your spiritual life first. Put your convenience second. You need a nap Like a child, get your nap later. Right now, deal with the things that adults deal with. Deal with your relationship with a living God. Rise, let's be going. See my betrayers at hand. There are things to do, people. The day has just begun. Well, actually, the day began at the meal. Fellowship, peace, grace, mercy, teaching, warnings, examples of prayer, and now it's time to do battle. God's prepped us. He's given us everything we need to get out there and do what we need to do. And that's enough. It's sufficient. She's done what she can to do a good work. Don't you see that? She's done what she's been able to do. And so Jesus looks at us as fallen human beings and he appreciates every effort we get and every effort we can put into our relationship with a living God. Everything Jesus told them is about to happen. And so that's where their faith gets founded, is that they become much better believers when they see God working. It's a reciprocal relationship. And we'll dig into that. We'll dig into the 
rest of this chapter next week, and we'll hopefully finish with the other 30 verses that are in this chapter. It's a mo- How did they go for like 30 verse chapters, and then all of a sudden you get this one, it's a monster. I think this is what happened. Whoever decided where the chapter breaks were, they're like, we're just going to get through this stuff quick. Because it's, it's a bummer, is it not? Like, this is not the fun part of the Gospels, the rise of the ministry, and this is the, like, Jesus heading to the cross. This isn't the the part we like. So I think whoever divided the chapters is like, let's just snap through all this stuff and get there. So we'll get, we'll finish it up next week. Let's pray. Lord and King, we love you. We don't say that lightly. Lord, you made a covenant and you lived a sinless life so that death couldn't accept you and was unable to put a curse on someone who didn't deserve a curse. Lord, we know that as you offer us your body and your blood, and we do that in remembrance next week, Lord, help us to take that seriously, Lord, that we come before you and we understand that we're making a covenant with God. And there's nothing short of that. There's nothing, um, there's nothing more important than that. And so, Lord, we come together as a family, even today, as brothers and sisters, And we lift you up because you're almighty God. You're the most important thing we have. And Lord, we know that you gave your sacrifice and that if we don't watch and pray, we will fail. And Lord, we know you still love us. We know you still watch over us. We know that you want us to succeed and thrive in our Christian lives. Lord, we know that even the discipline of prayer is something we need you to change our hearts on. Help make our hearts tender to prayer to where we desire to be doing it on a regular basis all the time. Lord, may we pray without ceasing, as you said. May we, be, we develop those hearts. Help us to mature and grow so that our prayers aren't always asking you for things, but, but praising you for things and asking for your will to be made to know. Lord, open our eyes to see when you've got opportunities for us. Open our ears to hear what you want us to hear from you so that we can be walking by the Holy Spirit every week, every day, every moment, and this hour, that hour has come. Lord, if there's anyone in the room right now that isn't right with you, they haven't made themselves right with you, Lord, I just pray that you will humble their heart in the Spirit. May they come before you with all seriousness, with all humility, with all truth, and recognize that they're fallen and they can't do it without you. And Lord, I want my brothers and sisters to just be living the life you want for them, the life of victory and joy. So Lord, may we give those failings to you as Peter's about to see that he can't do it in his flesh neither can we Um, your greatest champion the head of your church can't do it who are we to think that we can so Lord may we humble ourselves before you may your Holy Spirit enter us give us words in the moment give us hearts that love and adore the people around us and Lord may we be just leave Mary alone and let her do her ministry and may we have the same heart towards ourselves and towards other people that we just want to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.